Welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for joining the podcast. I'm Zach Griffiths, your host, senior investment grade strategist here at Credit Sites. And joining me today is Eric Axon, our co-head of high yield research and senior healthcare analyst. Eric, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Zach. Let's jump right in with our opener. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic credit market or sector specific data for 2023, what would it be and why? Oh, good one. I guess to start, the way I frame that is, you know, just getting the, the obvious out in the open there that you know, pharma is a, a defensive non-cyclical sector. So it generally outperforms during periods of market stress or risk off cycles. Obviously, we saw some of that last year, but any indication of how the Fed plans to manage interest rates is obviously enormously important for credit markets. For pharma, anything that kind of implies a hard landing for rates in the economy would actually be positive for the sector. Not that I'm rooting for that outcome, but it would certainly be helpful to know if there are any curveballs coming from the Fed and, you know, and it sounds more hawkish, generally leads to some risk off sentiment and some benefit to the pharma sector. But I would say on the sector specific side, we're really focused on the pricing provisions within the Inflation Reduction Act. The first basket of drugs that are going to become subject to Medicare negotiation are set to be disclosed by the CMS in the fall of this year. I believe it's in September. That's going to be 10 drugs in total that are subject to Medicare negotiation. We have a fairly decent idea of which drugs may fall on that list, but obviously to know definitively ahead of time would, would be great for us. Definitely. That makes sense. And the Fed speak, Fed tactical positioning certainly rings throughout these sector interviews we've been doing. It's interesting. Fed speak has been quite hawkish. And I think that's kind of been the case for the past couple of weeks since the January, February FOMC meeting. So it's definitely creating an interesting macro backdrop after a very hot start to the year at the credit markets, I'd say. And with that hot start, let's jump right into your sector recommendation for 2023. What underlies the core of your view this year? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just starting with investment grade pharma, we entered the year with a market perform view. That's really a reflection of both technical and, and fundamental factors. From a technical standpoint, the first thing I would note is that at least entering the year, pharma traded about 40 basis points tight to the investment grade index. So quite tight versus the index. That's actually a wider differential than historic norms. Generally, pharma trades about 25 basis points inside the IG index. And so, you know, right off the bat, that dynamic was going to make any kind of outperformance really tough to come by, absent a doom and gloom scenario for the economy, which obviously is not our house view. But then I'd say balancing that, that one technical headwind is the other big technical, which is our expectation of a pretty muted new issuance calendar for pharma for 2023. The refinancing calendar is actually pretty light this year. We think there will be M&A activity in the space, but we think it's largely going to be of the bolt-on variety. So, so likely not deals of the size that require a lot of, of new debt funding. 
I think the one exception there is obviously Amgen came to market with a $24 billion deal to fund a Horizon acquisition. But absent that deal, which we really view as an anomaly in the sector, we see limited new supply technical headwinds in the space. And then from a fundamental perspective, yeah, in our view, things actually look pretty balanced. Sector leverage has moved incrementally lower since 2020. The sector on the operational side is facing some intensifying patent expiration risk. A lot of drugs, a lot of big drugs are going to roll off patent come the middle part of the decade. And management teams are effectively using bolt-on M&A to help mitigate that risk. But again, overall, balance sheets are pretty healthy. Cash balances are robust. And management teams and companies have a lot of ability to execute tuck-in M&A. We think there's going to be a modest leveraging trend in the sector for this year, but again, starting from a relatively healthy place. And then ultimately that M&A activity, that bolt-on activity that we expect to happen, we think it's going to mitigate a lot of the growth challenges that are kind of on the horizon over the kind of the middle part of the decade. So ultimately, from a strategic perspective, we think that a good deal of that M&A should be constructive over the medium term. So that kind of brings us to a market perform for IG. And then just really briefly on high yield healthcare, we shifted this year to an outperform recommendation from a market perform. The high yield healthcare index is comprised primarily of the large hospital operators. So community health, tenant, as well as the pharmaceutical names. There's Bosch Health in there, Mallinckrodt, Organon. Both of those subsectors have, um, have their, their challenges in the year ahead. The hospitals are facing pretty meaningful labor cost issues. They could see an unwind of payer mix and acuity benefits that helped them through the pandemic. But that being said, we think those risks were and are largely priced into the hospitals as we started this year. And we've seen some strong rallies from the hospitals year to date. Uh, and then for pharmaceutical names, that sector, particularly in high yield land, is kind of inherently idiosyncratic, just given the nature of drug portfolios and patent risks. Bosch Health is kind of the big story in high yield healthcare on the pharmaceutical side right now. They're undergoing a separation transaction, which is going to be bad for the credit. But that being said, the secured notes make up the bulk of that structure. And the pricing on those secured notes looks to be below our estimated recovery values. So we think that those have kind of bottomed out from a, from a relative value perspective. And then you've got performing stories like a company like Organon that is uh, effectively a double B type of, of credit risk that we expect to perform pretty well. On balance, that gives us an outperform in high yield healthcare. Great. So maintain market perform on IG Pharma and a shift to outperform on high yield healthcare. What would you need to see to change your rec? At this point, you, you just changed your rec on high yield healthcare. It was a maintain on IG. Is there anything specific in IG? Let's start with um, that you're looking at that could change your thinking in the near term. I think if anything, we'd be inclined to a more bearish stance on the sector. Again, a lot of that is driven by just pure relative value. And you know, the big kind of elephant in the room for pharma is always big deal, big M&A risk. You know, the chance that the sector just really heats up and becomes really active from an M&A perspective, that's on our base case view. But certainly if management teams looked to be postured in a way that was more aggressive in, in terms of taking on leverage, that would be something that would probably tip us to an underperform IG Pharma. And for high yield, obviously you just changed your rack. Are you still comfortable with that? Has anything changed? It's only been maybe two months since putting out the outlook, but I'd say it's been an interesting start to the year. Has anything changed there fundamentally? Or are you still comfortable with the outperform for now? We're comfortable with the outperform. There, there's been quite a rally. I mean, in, in hospital land in particular, some of the Harrier credits like Community Health have seen massive rallies. Their unsecured notes and their second liens are up like 30 points over the last four months. We actually shifted to a sell on the second lien notes there on a pretty much a purely time to take money off the table type of perspective. 
But all the hospitals have now reported and provided guidance, which looks relatively intact for the year ahead. I'd say we, we're modestly more bearish than the management teams on things like volume growth and rate pressure for the year ahead. But I think from a relative value perspective, we still like the outperform weighting there. A name like Community Health, again, has, has first liens that trade over 9% on a yield to worst basis, which we think is attractive. That's single B paper. And then performance, it's, it's really idiosyncratic. And so we're just really tactical about our our individual company views, and then obviously cognizant of how that rolls up into the high yield healthcare index. But right now, I think we're appropriately positioned there in terms of how we think the Bosch Health situation is going to work out, how we think some of the performing names, again, like an Organon, are going to play out. It would take basically a really broad-based downturn in hospital operations, probably to tip us to a more neutral stance, probably coupled with the rally that we've seen in that space, at least up until you know a week or two ago. Right. And that's a good segue to my next point or next question I wanted to ask. How do you think clients are positioned? And maybe we could start with high yield healthcare here. Are they generally positive or negative? Do you think there was strong participation in the recent rally in spreads or was the rally in spreads driven by inflows into the sector? How do you think the clients that you've spoken to or, you, or the clients in this sector are positioned at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. My sense is that the rally was probably driven by inflows, although it, it's hard to say. I think that a lot of our clients that play in, in high yield healthcare, you know, there are some big structures. And so that then provides the opportunity to play at a first lien, a second lien, at an unsecured level of a structure. And so you can get, you know, clip a pretty good yield at the first lien layer of, of some large structures, even if those are quite kind of hairy in terms of, you know, operational quality and or kind of leverage kind of profile. We speak to a lot of clients that are positioned in those higher level kind of stories that aren't necessarily distressed, but are stressed. And so I think that's one way to clip yield in the space. As you move down capital structure, you know, into like a community health, into a Bosch health, that's very much a, you know, a type of investment for a very, a very high risk tolerance. The two ways that, that clients are positioned are, are one, playing that kind of first lien structure for names where they offer some yield or, or looking to performing names in, you know, the double B context. Organon and Teva are two names there that I think people pay a lot of attention to. There are some smaller ones. Davida is another one, although we have quite a bearish view on Davida at this moment in time. It's kind of a barbell strategy. They're playing high up in structure for stress names or, or look into the performing names to get some yield. And any thoughts on client positioning in the IG pharma space? For IG Pharma, there's been some spread compression. I think there's a little bit of a kind of yield starved vibe in investment grade pharma right now. Amgen came with a, with a deal that was earmarked for roughly 20 billion. I think the order book there was $90 billion plus. Spreads look attractive on IPT and then obviously worked their way down before launch time, but still offered some good spread. And so investors that look at IG Pharma are looking into those primary market opportunities, which are unfortunately kind of few and far between. But you know, Amgen, I think, was a great example of a company coming with a little bit of new issue concession and investors just totally hammered it. That's definitely been an interesting topic and kind of gets to my next point on new issue activity. I know you made some comments on it at the outset, but maybe just to frame up your issuance expectations this year relative to 2022 and longer term trends, do you see that as reverting back to norms or more recent trends are, are going to hold? Can you give us a little more color on your issuance expectations? First, I'd say just for some context, new issuance activity over the last two years, so really 2021 and 2022 has been relatively light. Part of the reason for that is M&A activity has come down. Some of that was COVID related, but a lot of it was, you know, certain management teams pulled the large deals or even medium-sized deals, companies that were actively paying down debt in the wake of that M&A. 
as maturities came up, they were addressing those with liquidity and free cash flow. Names that come to mind are, you know, Bristol Myers, Abbey, Gilead, Viatris to some extent. We're all paying down gross debt. That just kind of exacerbated an already somewhat light refinancing calendar. Maturity calendar, again, for 2023 is pretty light. But right now we see fewer management teams that are actually looking to address maturities with cash on hand. I think there will be an uptick in refinancings. You know, candidates for that, like an Abby and AstraZeneca, uh, Bristol is on that list. And I think Gilead's on that list as well. I think all could be refi candidates. And then I think the next layer of demand in pharma historically for new money is, is M&A. And so Again, with a, a bolt-on lean and kind of bolt-on tilt to activity for this year, we think that there's not going to be a ton of deal financing because yeah, even a five, $10 billion type transaction, particularly with a higher interest rate environment, management teams can pretty easily use cash balances and, and free cash flow to address the, a, a deals of that size. Longer term, we will likely see, you know, kind of a, an elevated M&A cycle again. You know, we saw elevated M&A cycles in 2014, 2015. We saw it in 2018, 2019. I mean, obviously you have to layer, layer in the fact that we've got, you know, an, a different FTC environment that's just taken a much harsher look you know, at big deals, particularly in tech and in pharma. But I think over a longer arc, we'll get more healthy refinancing activity and we'll see just a steadier cadence of, of deal financings. The one exception perhaps this year that I would call out another name that just reported earnings was Biogen. They've historically had a pretty sleepy stance on M&A and I think it's really uh, worked against them. They just got a new CEO in the door a couple quarters ago. And that company's stance on M&A had shifted quite dramatically just on their call, um, talking about you know $10 billion of deal capacity. That would absolutely be a debt-funded type transaction for them. And so, and they could even perhaps go bigger than that, just given some of their operational deficiencies. I think near term, we're probably looking at some refi activity, but less so on the, on the M&A financing. But that longer term, I, I do expect perhaps not to revert to the mean where like these jumbo jumbo deals that are $60 billion plus. It seems like th those are going to be hard deals to get through the anti antitrust clearance, but you know, kind of that middle tier so, you know, deals that are bigger than 10 billion, but probably less than like 30 billion, but we could see some M&A financing needs come out of that kind of transactions. Great. Well, I wanted to get your thoughts on receptivity to new issues so far this year. And I know we touched on Amgen, which was a big one. I did lose you for maybe 10 seconds after we you kind of mentioned that the order book was huge at around 90 billion. So maybe if you could just hit on that one more time. And then if there are any other interesting deals that have come to market recently that are indicative of investor demand or lack thereof, that'd be great to get your thoughts on. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Amgen was just really robust. The order book was huge. I think a lot of people, a lot of eyeballs were on the deal. I think part of that, again, is because of kind of a spread-starved dynamic in investment-grade pharma. There haven't been a lot of primary market opportunities for investors. You know, IPT on that deal came way wide, way wider than we even thought it would. So I think it really got people excited. And then you kind of fold in the fundamentals of why Amgen is issuing debt. It's essentially to fund growth and diversification through the middle part of the decade to help smooth out some big patent losses that they have coming up. It's obviously a leveraging transaction, but I think you know us as a at credit sites and the market has relatively comfortable view on management's willingness and ability to reduce debt. I think that had a lot of uh, factors made it a deal that people were willing to participate in. There was quite a warm reception, if not enthusiastic reception, to a name like Amgen that has you know a pretty good market reputation coming with as much debt as they did. Anything else or any other interesting deals so far in 2023 that are noteworthy or is Amgen kind of the top one so far? Yeah, that's been the top one so far. We really haven't had that much new issuance activity in pharma. 
Yeah, I would say for high yield healthcare, there hasn't been much either, but we are looking forward to possible new issuance from Teva. They've got some maturities that they need to refinance. That's a super interesting name. And then Tenant Healthcare is another one, one of the big hospital operators. They could potentially be a little bit more deliberate with when they tap the market. They'll be looking to refinance some 2024 maturities, so they have some time there. But certainly we are kind of poised to be on top of those deals when they come. Awesome. So shifting gears a bit away from issuance more to the balance of risks, what keeps you up at night for your sectors as far as risks that are out there, maybe obvious risks that are well understood or maybe overemphasized and risks that you don't think are getting talked about enough? I think for IG Pharma, like all roads, as is generally the case, lead back to M&A risk and those big M&A waves. I kind of touched on that. So yeah, that's the one that investors are kind of always aware of. You don't want to step on that landmine, you know, for a big leveraging deal. Although I, I do think that for a case like Amgen, when there is a clear strategic merit to a deal and, and there is a path to deleveraging, I think the new issue market provides a really good chance to get involved there. I think that the risk that is probably relatively less understood, but is certainly becoming more understood is just how big the wave of patent expirations is going to be in the next three, four, five years. We've got some really big companies, solidly investment grade companies like a Pfizer, a Bristol, AstraZeneca, 30 to 50% of their existing revenues are scheduled to roll off patent and to face generic or biosimilar competition. From an operational perspective, the sector hasn't been that interesting in years and years. It's a verifiable patent cliff that's coming. Not every company is going to face that pain in the same precise year, but all of them have to be preparing for it. And by preparing for it, you know, there's obviously two ways to do that. One is through your organic pipeline development, which actually tends to be quite hard to time given you know, the probability of failure in clinical development. And so the way that you then supplement that again is bolt on M&A activity. Most companies have a, enough runway right now to do stepping stone type acquisitions to build their late stage pipeline or to build their commercial platform to be prepared for generic and biosimilar competition. But you know, there's going to be winners and losers in that, in that kind of equation where companies think they're acquiring some great late stage assets and maybe they don't clear clinical or maybe they don't clear regulatory and they've just levered up or spent a lot of cash on assets that never are going to generate revenue or EBITDA. That is then a lot scarier of a proposition if one of your big drugs that's about to roll off patent. Almost all of our investment grade names are dealing with that dynamic to some extent. Um, it, it makes our job as analysts a lot more interesting and I, it's something that we've been talking to the market a lot about. What is your top pick and top pan and or best carry trade to start the year and give us the rationale behind those? Yeah, sure. So top pick, yeah, we still like AbbVie a lot. The market has been getting a lot more comfortable with that name. I do still think there's a spread compression opportunity there to some extent. The short story there is that their biggest drug and actually one of, one of the biggest drugs in the market, Humira, is facing biosimilar competition right now almost 40% of, of their revenue base is facing generic pressure, biosimilar pressure, I should say. The opportunity here is that, you know, the market is gaining comfort with the erosion curve for Humira and particularly with the assets that AbbVie has either acquired or organically developed that are going to start filling in the hole left by Humira. The market's getting more comfortable and as they get even more comfortable with the return of that company to growth, which is probably going to be a 2024 event, perhaps a, a bit later than that. But as that comfort kind of increases, that that's where we see a spread, you know, opportunity there. Most importantly, particularly from a credit perspective, is we think leverage can actually move lower for this company throughout the erosion cycle for Humera. The company is still going to generate a ton of free cash flow. They appear relatively committed to keeping that leverage below two times. And so there's a little bit more juice left to squeeze with Abby. And not to 
beat a dead horse here, but I think Amgen's latest bond deal is really priced for outperformance. Again, there's there's real legitimate strategic merit to the Horizon acquisition that we see. And this is not a management team that has historically balked at reducing leverage. And we think the, the willingness is there. We think they have the ability to reduce leverage. And so we think within probably two years of deal close, they'll be pretty darn close to pre-acquisition leverage levels. So I think that's a name that we expect to trade actively in the secondary. And ultimately, we think a fair value for that name is probably 15 to 20 basis points behind Abby at the 10-year part of the curve, at least. And that implies a pretty good spread compression opportunity there. Um, from a carry trade, we like Organon a lot. You get some yield pickup versus the double B index. This is a name that has a credit profile that's solidly double B, I'd say, from an operational perspective. But from a leverage perspective, it's more like a triple B type credit. It's relatively new to the market. It was a name that was spun off a little over a year ago. And so there's there's some newness and some lack of familiarity in the market. But we've been pitching that one to clients for some time now. And then I think importantly for the carry aspect of it is you get about 100 basis points of yield pickup in Organon versus the company's closest peer, which is, is a triple B rated name, Viatris. Viatris has got some pretty meaningful event risk. It's got some downgrade risk. We like that carry um, over in Organon over Viatris quite a bit. To finish it up on PANS, I'd say the Bosch Health Senior Unsecureds probably stand out as our biggest TAN right now. From a price perspective, those notes trade in the low 40s. We, we estimate, and we've done some, some recovery and some valuation work that you know, if and when the eye health separation happens, which could be announced in the near term, that those notes are going to have extremely weak recoveries. So we see still a fair amount of downside on those unsecured notes. We think that that separation announcement would be one negative catalyst for those notes. It could happen as soon as that earnings announcement, though it'll probably be a bit more protracted than that. And then there's also a critical patent ruling pending for that company could happen around the end of this year, which would be another kind of equally important negative catalyst and another big step down for those unsecured notes. DHC unsecureds are our top hand. That's great. Thanks, Eric. That's a perfect roadmap or ideas for clients to consider as they listen through these. So let me finish up with a question I've enjoyed asking so far. If you had any words of advice for management teams in 2023, what would you tell them? You know, I think, I think just sticking with the theme that, you know, I've kind of beaten to death on this call here is the wave of patent expirations that are coming. My advice would be just to get ahead of it. From a credit seat, such a tough dynamic when management teams wait too long to supplement their drug portfolios with M&A. The last thing that you want is to need to acquire assets while your EBITDA is already declining from patent losses. Obviously, you've got you know, the EBITDA shrinking, which is not helpful to leverage. You've got a lower EBITDA base from which to acquire, which is, is not helpful. And so it becomes this kind of situation where, where leverage can get kind of out of hand kind of quickly. I think Biogen, not to pick on them, but is kind of an example of that right now. We're quite frankly, super surprised they hadn't pulled the trigger on M&A in the last two, three years. They just, over the last year, year and a half, lost exclusivity on one of their largest multiple sclerosis drugs, Tecfidera. Their adjusted EBITDA is now down something like 50% on a two-year stack. And so now they want to go out and acquire, which I would definitely agree is something they need to do. Um, but they've got a much smaller EBITDA base to do that from. And so obviously the risk from a leverage and from a ratings perspective is a heck of a lot higher. I guess my advice would be just to avoid those types of situations and, and get ahead of your kind of your M&A needs well before revenue and EBITDA start declining from patent losses. Well, hopefully management teams are listening. That sounds like sound advice. Eric, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on today. This was very helpful for me personally, and I'm sure it'll be very helpful for all of our clients. Absolutely happy to do it, Zach. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks.
And thank you all for listening in. I'm Zach Griffiths, Senior U.S. Investment Grade Credit Strategist. We look forward to you joining us for our next sector interview. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.